We've been in the book of John for the whole season of Lent this year, and the uh, we're going to stay in John actually through Easter, and then um, we might leave for a little bit, but then when we uh, get to Pentecost, I'm actually hoping to not do Acts 2. We did that last year. It's a great uh, chapter. We've done Acts 2 a number of times, but I, I hope to actually end up in Revelation 1 uh, on Pentecost. So there's just a, if, if you want to read ahead, um, you, can, you can take a look at that. Today, we uh, celebrate Palm Sunday, which, of course, the reading we just heard tells us is the day that Christ enters into Jerusalem as as a king, uh, a triumphal entry, an entry into the city in which he's received as king, as the son of God in the city of God. And at this point in, in, in the seasons, Lent is officially over today, and we then move on to uh, Holy Week. Um, this is one, this is two uh, of the days in the year where the red runner on our tablecloth actually matches the uh, liturgical color days. A broken clock is right how many times a day? Twice? Same with this. Our red runner is right on Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday and on Pentecost, uh, speaking of both the blood and the fire. And so uh, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. How many of you liked experiencing the palms this morning? It was fun. Let's give our brother Terry a, a wonderful hand. Terry, Terry helped us poor bums out who were bad at planning this year. Um, but, but what we did this morning in waving of the palms while singing Hosanna was intentional. And I just want to suggest that if you think that was religious or somehow weird, I just want to suggest to you that you are a symbolic person. And I have two pieces of evidence. And then once I do, I'll rest my case and you'll be convinced. The first case is, uh, the first piece of evidence is, is birthday. How many of you have ever celebrated your birthday? How many of you have celebrated your birthday with a cake? Okay, what happens when they bring out the cake? Usually you don't make it, someone else makes it. They put on candles, which either symbolize the number of years or symbolize your life. So if you're 15 or 16, you get 15 or 16 candles on a cake. And at some age, it becomes a fire hazard to keep putting candles for the number of years. And so it then just represents your life. So if you're 45, you have a four and a five right there on the cake, and they light those. What happens at the end of the birthday song? The community comes around you, and they sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. They're celebrating you being born. And the number of candles symbolizes the year of your, years of your life. What happens at the end of the song? You blow out the candles. You are acknowledging, maybe you're not even aware of this, you're acknowledging that one day your body of flesh will return to the ashes that are on the ends of those burnt, burnt candles. You're, you're snuffing out the years of your life. It, it's an intentional reminder of the, of the humanity and, and mortality of man. And that is a very intentional symbol. Now, most of us, the birthday cake has been such a, a long tradition. It's hundreds and hundreds of years old. Many of us have never even thought through. But if you think through what, what's going on, you're putting an end to the number of... And then, you know, the next year you add another. It's a perpetual reminder because you need reminded that your days are numbered. 
just like your years are numbered on the cake. And then the second uh, piece of evidence that I have that you are a symbolic person, what is on my hand, my left hand here, on my ring finger, it's a ring, it's a wedding ring. What is the purpose of a wedding, of, of a wedding ring? A wedding wing. The purpose of a wedding ring is to serve as a visual reminder of my covenant that I've made before God, before God's people, to my wife. What would come home, or what would happen if I came home without my wedding ring on? Yeah, the wife would say, what's up? Jordan, I'd buy another one. Yes, perfect. I would buy another one. No, the wife would be terribly upset. With what reason? The reason is, is most, most of us know that if you're going to commit adultery, the, the idea is you're going to take off your ring uh, so that you don't, you know, have that on while you're doing your thing. Uh, but, or, or you were careless. But why is, why is the wife arguably extremely mad? It's because you've broken the sign of the covenant. It doesn't make any sense for her to be mad if it doesn't mean anything, right? If the ring means nothing, then it doesn't mean anything that I've lost it. But if the, if the ring is a sign and token of my pledge to her, then it means everything in the world and she's righteously angry uh, with me that I've lost my ring. So there I've convinced you that you're a symbolic person. Now, I don't think if you've lost your ring, you've committed adultery. That's not what I'm saying, but, but the, the wedding ring is a symbol. And if, if you lose your ring, your wife will be upset because we are symbolic people, whether we know it or not. And so that's what the palms were about today. The palms were about, a, they were a visual sermon, a symbol, a sign of the, the, the day that we're celebrating here. So with that in mind, I want to look at uh, John 12, the, the account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And I want to look at three different elements uh, there's a, a foreshadowing of betrayal that takes place at the beginning of this chapter. Then there's, after that goes on, Jesus has this encounter uh, with, where he's praying to the Father and thunder comes down and the crowd's around. Um, and, and in the midst of that situation, Jesus is continually demonstrating through the Gospel of John that the people are not able to follow him. They're not able to receive from him. And then finally, I want to um, talk again about this theme of light and darkness. I hope you're beginning to see this theme. It's, it's probably the most concrete motif or pattern or mode of communication in the book of John. It is the single word picture which weaves through every, uh, every major event in the book of John. And so... Uh, with that, we're, we're going to look at light and darkness and what that has to say to us today. So at the beginning of the chapter, there is a pattern of betrayal. There's a foreshadowing. Does, any, does anybody know what an omen is? An omen is a bad sign. Usually a bad omen is a sign, something that happens in a play or a narrative that tells you something's about to go down. And here we see three different omens at the beginning, before the triumphal entry, we, we see Judas Iscariot uh, confronting Jesus concerning what Mary has just done. And so the, the last chapter, John 11, which we talked about a few weeks ago, Lazarus has just been raised. And at this point, Mary, Mary and Martha are there with the Lord. And Mary performs uh, what is known as uh, 
you know, the, her great sacrifice, she breaks this very expensive vial of perfume on the feet of the Lord and wipes uh, his feet, uh, so, so anointing him for his burial uh, in, in a way. Again, that's a, that's a sign beforehand. And Judas Iscariot uh, protests this great sacrifice, and it reveals his idolatrous heart, as in Judas was already a lover of money as it says in this chapter. And he merely reveals that at this point in the, in the gospel. Judas, at this moment, doesn't become an idolater. He always is, even though Jesus chose him. But unlike all of the other disagreements where Peter or Nathaniel or, or Philip and Andrew, they get into these disagreements in the gospel, none of them except for possibly Peter's telling of Christ that he won't have to go to the cross, none of them have a diabolical element to them like this does. John 12, 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, this is Judas, but because he was a thief, having charge of the money bag, he used to help help himself to what was put in it. This, uh, This demonstration that Judas does is merely a place in his heart at the beginning. And so Judas is not at all uh, in a place of trust, although he's been given the authority or the role of being the the treasurer. Just like Judas, the, the crowd here, it comes and worships Christ. They fall down at his feet. But it, the scriptures say they didn't do this because they fully realized he was the son of God and they were uh, they were worshiping him as such. They did this according to the, what the gospel of John says, because of the signs that Jesus performed. John 12, 12 through 13, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palms and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Continuing on, verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Okay, up until this point, it seems like a really good thing. They're worshiping Jesus. They're, they've uh, broken down palm branches. They're bringing a uh, wave offering, if you will, to the Lord. And yet, verse 18 makes it plain. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The crowd that welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem does not remain faithful to their initial praise and offering. They, they are going to quickly turn, as we're going to see this upcoming Friday. Finally, the Pharisees, they grumble amongst themselves, seeing the crowds following after Jesus. John 12, 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. So the Pharisees are here, they're, it's kind of like, imagine a boys club here. They're, they're kind of corralling around and they're basically telling each other, hey, we're losing the people of Israel. You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So these three different elements of this foreshadowing of betrayal uh, form a, a literary triad, which is uh, saying that this betrayal that's coming up is going to be massive. It's going to be huge. Judas, as the treasurer, he was in charge of provision and funding for Christ and the disciples. And yet, we will see on Friday, Satan enters, uh, well, I guess Thursday night. He, he enters through Satan, and because of his love of money, betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver. You see, Judas was not just here 
in idolatry or after money. And he wasn't just in the past throughout his time of following Christ in idolatry who was filled with the love of money. That will be ultimately his downfall. The sin that betrays him, the sin that plagues him, what we sometimes call besetting sins, this Judas does not conquer through faith in Christ, but he lets it fester. And we're going to see how this ultimately ends in Judas's demise. Just like Judas has this this fear or this love of money, so the Pharisees also have a love of pride. They're supposed to be, if you remember from when John, uh, in John 3, when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, they were supposed to be the teachers and shepherds of Israel, leading Israel toward God. And yet when God comes into the city of Jerusalem, they don't care that the Lord has come among their midst. They don't care that the people seemingly are following after Christ. They only care that they are losing their religious territory. And so the, the sin that was in them the whole time ultimately becomes their downfall. Um, and then the, finally, the crowd that welcomes Jesus coming in as the Prince of Peace, they'll soon turn from singing of praises to shouts of contempt and murder. You see, John makes it plain in verse 18 that the reason the crowd came and praised the Lord was because he had done a sign, not because they had been converted to see him as the Son of God and Savior of the world. Now, at this point in the story, there's this transition uh, in the book of John. I think, in my mind, this is actually uh, what you might call the focal point, or on a, you know, a seesaw, it's the axis on which the whole book of John pivots. The entire message of the book of John is Jesus coming to Israel, Israel's rejecting Jesus, and then at this point, the gospel is, of course, intentionally going to go out to the whole world, and when the Greeks come and tell Philip and Andrew that they would like to see Christ, uh, Jesus then has this, uh, what you might call a denouement, or a moment of clarity, a, a resolution. He then doesn't even meet with the Greeks, but then says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And here, we move out of Lent into Passion Week and remember what uh, Jesus says. And so this is what the liturgy of, the, the, of Palm Sunday tells us, that we who just wove, wove the palm branches, palm branches, we who just wove them in worship and exalted and proclaimed Hosanna, we are intentionally identifying with the fickle crowd who will turn from praises to a mob who shouts out, crucify him. That's what Palm Sunday reminds us, our own sinfulness and our own weakness of, of, uh, of righteousness, which keeps us often from acknowledging Christ, but, but rather would cause us to deny Christ time and again, not just in the public square, but also in our lives as we fight against sin, as we seek to follow after the Lord's commands. We too are like this crowd. We are weak. And that's what this day tells us. But Jesus is not done with us. He's not done with the crowd. Jesus doesn't see the fickleness of their hearts and dismiss them, but rather instead directly preaches to them in the midst of his interaction. Jesus recognized the Greeks coming to him, and and that's the sign that is going to lead to his death. And so he begins to be troubled in heart, and in the midst of this situation, prays to the Father, even while the crowd's all around In John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, 
and I will glorify it. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Just as the Father spoke at Christ's baptism, beginning his public ministry, so again a voice comes from heaven, and this marks the close of Christ's public ministry. From now on, it will just be his atonement, and then after the resurrection, the forming and, and jumpstart of the church. Jesus is removed from the public sphere, and the hour of visitation that has come upon Israel has closed. Now, Jesus is moving steadily towards the cross, directly and intentionally. He does not say in the midst, as some people who, who when they see Jesus in the garden, bleeding, sweats of, uh, sweating drops of blood, so intentional in making it to the cross, yet knowing the pain and the suffering he's going to go through, some see that and say, Jesus was not fully committed. I want to tell you, That is a complete lie. Jesus in this verse demonstrates clearly, what can I say, Father, save me? No, this purpose, for this reason, I have come to this hour. Jesus then asks God in the midst of knowing that he's going to the cross to glorify his name. And the Father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. God has glorified his name through the ministry of Christ and will once again glorify it through Christ's passion. Jesus, as many of us understand, did glorify the Father on the cross, but the cross is not the only demonstration of the Father that took place in Christ's life. That's why you'll hear me say what Christ did in his life and ministry or his life and work. The the singular work of Christ that he accomplished on the cross in the atonement was vital for us, but without the revelation of the heart of the Father throughout Jesus' life and ministry, we may be convinced to have a wrong view of God. I believe that it's important for us to see that the cross and the compassionate ministry of Christ are one in the same. They are glorifying the Father and revealing the Father. And with that in mind, then Jesus is saying these things in the midst of the crowd, and yet the crowd does not understand. As we saw in John 9 and in John 3, the Pharisees, though they are supposed to be the guides of Israel, are actually blind. And the crowd here demonstrates that because they've been led by the blind, because they've been shepherded into deception, they themselves cannot even hear the voice of the Father. Some say that it thunders, others have said an angel has spoken. And yet Jesus does not write them off. He then continues to dialogue with them. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. What was the purpose? The purpose was that the people of God, the people of Israel, would hear the voice of the Father saying to Christ that I have glorified my name through your ministry and I will glorify it through what's about to happen. And yet, the people can't hear. They miss the point. How often this is the case with us. We, we hear God speak, and yet our ears are dull of hearing. They're filled with other things, the cares of this world, the, the sins that so often we get entangled in. And yet, the Lord speaks, and Jesus, again, operating in mercy, continues to dialogue with the crowd. The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I myself, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, at this point, it may seem unclear, but the crowd gets it. If he's saying, I'm going to be lifted up, they understand he's going to die. In the midst of the blindness of, of the people, Jesus demonstrates his kind heart in that he reaches out with words of mercy saying, these things are being done for you and you're, you're not getting it. You're, you're missing the point. And in, in this, Jesus is then revealing to themselves, he's telling the crowd beforehand, if I get lifted up, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself and, and they'll come. I'll, I'll be effective in my drawing. At this point, the crowd begins to demonstrate their fickleness or their hardness of heart. They then say in 33, uh, sorry, 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? They were just shouting out Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they don't even know who Christ is. Look at the quick turn, how fickle they are. And yet, we know that this is our condition. We cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then moment after, we say, who is the Son of Man? We deny Christ effectively either in the public square or in our life as we battle against sin. We turn our backs on the Lord. And yet, at this point, Christ continues to work on our behalf. This is the message of the gospel. So Jesus said to him, the light is among you for a little while longer. Do you remember this theme from the blind man and from, from John 3? The light is, a, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Jesus is saying, you need to become a son of light. You need to become one who is a child of God. And if you are to do that, you must believe in the one who he sent. Jesus is demonstrating uh, the nature or the manner in which the gospel is made effective in our life. Those who come to trust and believe on the Son of God become those who are sons of light or children of the light instead of children of darkness as we are before he comes. The crowd hears the words of Christ yet doesn't understand at all. He, the, the crowd hears Jesus saying, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and they have no capacity to understand how Jesus can die, and yet, as they say, the Christ remains forever. See, they had no uh, understanding that the resurrection was the pivotal element in, in this scenario. And we, too, often forget the importance of the resurrection. It is the case that often we think of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, and yet the necessity for Christ to remain forever is at the heart of this message. Jesus is not going to just remove the darkness from the children of darkness, enabling them to become children of light, but he himself will defeat darkness. And that's what the Gospel of John is all about. It's all about the fact that Jesus, the light of the world, came through Advent, through Christmas, the light of the world enters, he demonstrates and shines the light brightly. John the Baptist, who was a foreshadow or a prophet or a forerunner of the light, it's said that the people of Israel danced a while in his light. And at this point, Jesus 
the light of the world, as we sing in, in that song, will be slain by darkness. And yet, through his uh, death and resurrection, he will defeat darkness. And this is what opens up the way for us. We cannot believe in Christ without him completing the atonement, and the atonement does not become effective for us without believing. Jesus makes it clear over and over again, while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. After this, Jesus then kind of goes away for a little bit. Uh, There's some references to the prophets of old, which we don't have time to cover. But at this point, Jesus understands that he is not reaching the crowd, and yet this shows us the heart of God. In the midst of the hardness of our own hearts, in the midst of the deafness of our ears, Christ continues to preach. He continues to reach out, seemingly hope against hope, reaching to people who don't understand, who cannot hear. Jesus again cries out in John 44, um, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see, Jesus' coming into the world was to demonstrate the light of God to the people of Israel. The gospel writers, the apostles who wrote this down, uh, wrote it down in such a way that we too can receive this message. And Jesus is saying, while the light is among you, believe. Because there's an hour where the light won't shine anymore. That's what we are going to see at, at Good Friday. There, there's an hour that's coming, Jesus said, where no one can do the work. Just like the Pharisees, we are those who walk around in darkness. And it is only if God enables us to believe in the work of the Son that our eyes can be open and we can become children of light. At this point, Jesus continues to reach out and says to us in in verse uh, 47, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In the midst of this, Jesus offers a free call to people. In verse 44 that we just covered, whoever believes in me believes not in in me, but in the one who sent me. And whoever has the Father has the Son. And in this way, Jesus reaches past our blindness and our deafness and makes a free, viable, effective call. If you would but believe and stop performing and stop running around in the darkness seeking to open up your own eyes, if you would just believe and trust and place your hope upon Christ, then he would open your eyes. And it is those who can see Jesus who effectively, according to verse 35 and 36, who are the sons of light. And so on this day, in the midst of the, seeing the crowd turn from Hosanna to shouts of, of wonder and, and uh, dismay, being confused, being out of the loop, we have hope that even though we know Christ is going to the cross, he's on his way, we know and have hope that Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, does not hold out against the crowd their lack of understanding, but rather, in the midst of that, calls out and says, believe in me, trust in me, come to me. 
This is what Palm Sunday tells us. In the midst of our own brokenness, our own darkness, Christ still calls to us and offers a free call. Not one that we have to clean ourselves up beforehand, not one that we have to leave the darkness, but rather anyone who would believe they can be saved. This is the message of Palm Sunday, that without Christ's atonement and slaying of darkness, we would remain in darkness. And yet, it is not just his atonement, but also the grace that he freely gives, which makes that atonement viable and effective for us. So that's what we celebrate this wonderful day. And with that, we're going to close. If somebody could run and grab the kids, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We do say, Lord, Hosanna, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you, Jesus, would become for us the king on the throne of our hearts, that no other affection or thing in our life would have the seat uh, on, on the throne of our hearts, but rather that you alone would be king over our lives. Lord, we long to be those, those children who do the works of God, but Lord, we know that unless you change us, unless you open our eyes, none of that is possible. And indeed, it is just further hardening, hardening of our hearts. Lord, we ask that as we move to the days on which we remember your sacrifice, that you would produce in us a holy reverence as we remember your great sacrifice. Lord, I ask that you would fill us with faith that these things are being done for us, that in the midst of you being on the cross, we will soon hear you say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, we, we thank you for your wonderful grace how great a salvation you offer to us, that in the midst of our blindness, you want to open our eyes. In the midst of our deafness, you open our ears. Lord, we ask you that you would fill us with faith, that we would comprehend and apprehend the magnanimity and and, uh, size of the atonement, of how great an obstacle you overcame in our place. What we could not do, what we could not overcome, you have overcome. Lord, we pray that you would cause us, as we moved into Holy Week, to worship and rejoice, not just in somber uh, solemnity, but also with a joy, with a quiet joy, with a joy knowing that you do these things for us, not because you're mad at us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.